We are going into Iraq to liberate and not to conquer. This is Colonel Tim Collins. Well, actually, it's legendary actor Sir Kenneth Branagh playing Tim Collins in a film. Tim grew up in Belfast during the Troubles in the 60s and 70s. He joined the British military in 1981 and rose up through the ranks. By 2001, he was appointed commanding officer of the 1st Battalion Royal Irish Regiment. I mean, this dude, Colonel Tim, he was kind of the real deal, responsible for the lives of up to 1,000 soldiers. Now, there are some who are alive at this moment who will not be alive shortly. And here Tim was in 2003, standing in front of his troops on the eve of battle, delivering the speech of his life, a speech that would demonstrate his idealism, his desire to go to war and make a difference in the lives of the people of that country. Iraq is steeped in history. It is the site of the Garden of Eden, of the Great Flood. It is the birthplace of Abraham. You tread, you tread lightly there. This is a speech that would go down in history. The words would be passed around through a single transcript written by a journalist at the scene. Until today, where they sit on the walls of the Oval Office. Surrounding Tim are tanks, guns, and solemn-looking faces, set amongst the sparse desert backdrop of Kuwait. Let's bring everybody home safely and leave Iraq a better place for us having been there. Six months later, when Tim returned home, he was awarded an OBE by the Queen, a significant honor in recognition of his service in Iraq. He left the military the year after, with his chest full of medals. Then Tim did what a lot of retired army guys do. He went private, set up his own company, and offered governments the chance to buy his real-life expertise. Tim was practically a war hero, turning his skills into a commodity to be sold on the open market. I mean... Even if you're not in the market for a badass hero, he's somebody you'd want on your side. But it wasn't until 2015 when news stories started circling that the ethics of Tim's company were starting to come into question. That his rhetoric about going to war and making a positive change, maybe that didn't seem all that believable anymore. This is yet another example highlighting some of the inadequacies when it comes to contractor spending by the U.S. in Afghanistan. I'm Alzo Slade, and from Something Else, This Is Cheat, a series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? They called it the Forever War. That was until April 14th of 2021, when President Biden announced plans to withdraw troops from Afghanistan effectively ending America's occupation since the post-9-11 invasion. The occupation was coming to an end, but it quickly became clear that the trouble was not. As these images and videos flooded our news feeds showing the fall of Kabul. So after decades and countless lives lost, who were the real winners in Afghanistan? You could argue that it was the Taliban. They took back control pretty quickly. But... If you look a little bit deeper, some other winners begin to emerge. As it turns out, war 
is pretty fertile ground for dishonesty. And there's no shortage of people seeking to profit and use this volatile environment to their advantage. In some ways, this has always been the case. But in Afghanistan and the forever wars of the past 20 years, things went to a whole new level. And lots of those people making big dollars can be found working right alongside the U.S. military. I've been an investigative reporter for five decades now. That's Rhonda Schwartz, an investigative reporter who used to work at ABC. A lot of this traces back to the switch to the all-volunteer force. Rhonda says after the Vietnam War, the American people were less accepting of Uncle Sam's recruitment slogans and being forced to sign up for service. The draft lottery, a live report on tonight's picking of the birth dates for the draft. And the Army had lost confidence in the draft system because discipline problems among draftees were mounting. In 1971, President Nixon signed a law effectively ending the draft. So the Army was now to be solely made up of men and women who actually wanted to be there. I mean, it makes sense to have an army of soldiers who want to be soldiers, but no longer drafting people had a pretty obvious effect. They drastically shrunk the size of the force. But it also had another more crucial effect, something that would change the way the military worked forever. All through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, there was this theory that we would need fewer troops and we would outsource many support functions to private contractors. So the fighting men would be in uniform, but all the backup, the supply chain. The long tail of the forces, as they call it, would be private. And in the end, that would be a much more efficient, less expensive, fewer sons and daughters drafted, a win-win situation. And so for decades, we've operated on that principle. And somewhere, as these wars became longer and more unpopular, more was pushed into the private sector. And it became an almost invisible army. As you can probably guess, this invisible private army comes at a price, especially in Afghanistan. In total, over $131 billion of taxpayers' money has been spent on the reconstruction efforts in Afghanistan, with at least half of this going towards training the Afghan army and police, a job carried out mostly by private contractors. Tonight, I'd like to tell you how we will complete our mission and end the war in Afghanistan. In fact, leaving Afghanistan with robust security forces modeled in the image of the United States was one of Obama's key strategies as he fought to find a way to hand over the country back to its people. International troops will continue to train, advise, and assist the Afghans and fight alongside them when needed. But we will shift into a support role as Afghans step forward. As we do, our troops will be coming home. One of the private contractors heavily involved with training the Afghan security forces was George Scientific. They received nearly $900 million worth of contracts for work performed largely in the Middle East. You heard it right, $900 million. And in 2012, they held the contracts for the Legacy Program. The point of this program was to train the Afghan forces to carry on the fight against terrorism after the Americans left. George Scientific was tasked with organizing a mentor program for Afghani police and military intelligence to help professionalize their operations. Basically, to help them help us stop terrorist attacks. 
This legacy program was valued at over $314 million. Really knew nothing about the company. That's Rhonda again. Back in 2012, she was running the ABC News investigative team. And that's when she gets a tip that something might be up with George Scientific. A longtime source approached me to say that um, he was representing two whistleblowers. Not all whistleblowers are credible or come with information of value. But considering they were referred by a longtime source, Rhonda was going to hear him out. So these two gentlemen had both been in the military, retired, and like many uh, former military men, uh, were offered very well-paid, seemingly great jobs to work for a private contractor in Afghanistan. These two men were John Melson and Kenny Smith, both of them highly decorated former soldiers. The job sounded great to them, and they were told that they would be doing counterinsurgency training for local Afghan forces. Sounded like interesting work, important work, and uh, they signed up and off they went. John and Kenny found themselves stationed in Kabul at George Scientific's headquarters. The compound was close to the center of town, and at first, things seemed to be cool. But before long, things got kind of crazy. Like, really crazy. They told us the scenes were unbelievable of what they had seen, and they wanted to show us because it was so bad they had taken secret cell phone videos in order to have proof. Secret cell phone videos? What the hell was going down out there? Rhonda requested a copy of the videos. She sat down at her desk, opened her computer, and pressed play. The scenes they documented were wild, wild. There was a scene of a campfire with, you could see sort of half-naked men carousing, They were throwing ammunition into the fire. They were shooting off guns. Bullets were going off in the middle of in the middle of this residential area. What the hell? Drinking and dancing around, half naked, throwing bullets into the fire? That don't sound like a good time to me. More like a frat house ritual of toxic masculinity. Not to mention the safety hazard of throwing ammunition into a fire. Yeah, no thanks. There was drug abuse, there was uh, wild partying, there were empty bottles all over the place. I should probably note here that for the U.S. Army and private contractors, it was strictly prohibited to consume alcohol or drugs while in Afghanistan. The medic of the group was passed out with a needle stuck in his arm, and they told us that he was over, he had overdosed because he was regularly shooting up with ketamine, which is an animal tranquilizer. Oh, hell no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The medic? The dude who's supposed to be on ready alert, looking out for the health of the crew. This guy's doped up and passed out from horse tranquilizers? It it just was impossible to ignore what they were saying. But what about John and Kenny? They said they were not only not performing the contract, but they themselves felt like they were in physical danger. They took the unusual step of uh, just basically walking away from this and paying their own way out of the company, out of Afghanistan. 
they had each gone there, I think, expecting to make $250,000, you know, be set for life. They walked away from it all and were prepared to blow the whistle on the company, on what they saw, and essentially putting themselves in, in a lot of trouble. More on that after the break. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Our next step was to see if these men were willing to sit down and do interviews and show their face and tell it all. And they said they would. So we sat them down in front of a camera and got their full story. And they put their name and their face and their reputation on the line to go public with this. In the interview, John Melson said, working conditions at George Scientific's Cabo compound was like a frat house for adults. But before Rhonda went live, she needed to verify the story. One of the first things we did was, with some difficulty, track down the man who appeared in the videos with his needle hanging from his arm who appeared to be passed out from an overdose. This medical officer was living in Germany, and Rhonda decided to get in touch. Much to my surprise, um, expecting mostly a hang-up phone call, instead he said, yeah, it's all true and I'm lucky to be alive. But not everyone was so open. The first army officer that I reached, the response was in the category of, oh, how interesting. We know nothing about this. And I recall asking, have you had any complaints? Have you aware? What do they do? What's going on there? Who's been there to look? It was a very, we are not aware, and uh, we will take this down and look into it and get back to you. The cell phone footage was shown on ABC's Nightline back in October of 2012. It caused a huge uproar. Senator Claire McCaskill called for an investigation into the alleged abuses. If somebody isn't held accountable for letting this happen, it's going to keep happening. What about George Scientific? They released a statement that said they took decisive action to correct the unacceptable behavior of a limited number of employees. And the former senior executive, the medic, and several others mentioned in the complaint no longer work for George. A criminal investigation by the Pentagon into George Scientific took place. But ultimately, nothing came of it. I would say that when we asked a lot of questions, we heard over and over again that it was an old boys network system, that there were certain revolving drawers between military personnel and the contracting offices, that was a regular thing. 
the relationship between senior Pentagon officials and defense contractors runs pretty deep. It was very common practice for the offices giving out the contracts to be dealing with companies they had previously worked with, and also vice versa for the companies to be staffed with high-ranking military officers from the branch giving out the contracts. Yeah, yeah, that all sounds a little cozy to me. Then a few years later, in 2015, Rhonda received another tip about George Scientific. There had been an enormous data breach at the Office of Personnel Management, and thousands of, of records of federal employees had been hacked. And this company was hired to investigate the hack and repair the security defenses. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. The same company who just a few years before were in the news for videos of their employees having wild parties and crazy gun-filled bonfires? This company is now in charge of repairing security defenses for a government agency? It appeared that it was possible to have all these issues raised, all these allegations, and, and still manage to change your name and keep on getting defense contracts. After Rhonda's investigation at ABC, George Scientific, they figured they needed a rebrand. So they changed their name to Imperatus. Imperatus was out there winning new contracts. But check this out. They were also fulfilling contracts they had won while they were still George Scientific. We were very surprised to hear that they had even managed to retain Defense Department contracts. Oh, and it gets worse. Not only had the guys over at Imperatus retained all of these government contracts, an audit published in 2015 found that they couldn't provide documentation for $135 million the company collected in expenses. At the time, they said that, quote, a George government contract in Afghanistan that predates Imperatus was currently being audited, and that they, quote, are confident that the records under review will substantiate the costs in question by year's end. This audit, it also reveals something else. George Scientific, as they were known then, had subcontracted most of the actual work to another contractor, New Century Consulting. Their founder, the idealistic, speech-giving hero army dude from the beginning, Colonel Tim Collins. Let's bring everybody home safely and leave Iraq a better place for us having been there. More on that after the break. So I think we should just take a moment to recap this thing. So far in the story, we've got George Scientific, this defense contractor with a long history of working with the U.S. Army. They land this huge, lucrative deal to train the Afghan security forces to stop terrorist attacks. Then they realize, well, maybe we're really not up for delivering that training, so we're going to subcontract most of the work to this war hero guy, Colonel Tim Collins, and his company, New Century. And here is where the story gets even more crazy. Another audit released in 2017 stated that there was a total of $51 million in seriously suspect expenses made by New Century. And we're not talking about some stationary or petty cash spent here or there. We're talking luxury cars, Porsches, a Bentley, even an Aston Martin. Bro, who you got working for you? James Bond? I'm not sure an Aston Martin is of much use 
when training security forces in Afghanistan. We're losing soldiers. Families are sacrificing. We're worried about their benefits and their pay. And mm -hmm. some jerk is driving a Bentley in the UK yeah. on taxpayer money. If it doesn't make everybody upset, then something's wrong with them. That's Senator Claire McCaskill again. According to the report, New Century also spent $42,000 on automatic weapons. And they even hired the significant others of two high-ranking staff members. These folks were hired as executive assistants and paid $420,000. I mean, I realize being an assistant is a tough gig, but over $400,000? And what about the actual training New Century carried out? Did it even work? Well, the answer, according to Senator Claire McCaskill and a report she released in 2018, is that we'll never know. The report said that because the training they conducted lacked proper performance metrics, it was nearly impossible to determine the success or value of the legacy program. This is crazy. Let me get this straight now. Over $340 million in taxpayers' money spent on this program that was supposed to help the U.S. stop future terrorist attacks, and we don't really know how effective it was? What did New Century have to say about this? Well, they responded and stated that at no time did the company have seven vehicles, much less seven luxury cars. They also disputed the claims about the salaries for their executive assistants and denied purchasing unauthorized guns. We actually got in touch with them to ask them if there was anything they wanted to add now that a few years have passed. And somebody got back to us, their CEO, Michael Grumberg. He co-founded the company alongside Tim Collins, and he provided us with a letter explaining that a subsequent review of the 2013 audit year found that only 13% of the questioned costs were, in fact, questionable. New Century argued that this figure should be applied to the other audit years as well. They also challenged the report's finding that the investment from the government in the legacy program was ineffective, arguing that the investment, quote, saved countless lives and supplied U.S. and partner coalition forces with valuable, actionable intelligence crucial to thwarting terrorist networks. And we should also note at this point that nowhere in any of the audits or reports was Tim Collins mentioned by name. We wanted to get the perspective on all this from someone who actually served in Afghanistan, someone who was there on the ground. So we decided to get in touch with an ex-British Army officer. We promised we wouldn't include her name so that she can give a bit more of an honest assessment of her time spent in Afghanistan. For the purposes of this, we'll call her Sally. Turns out Sally actually joined the Army two days before 9-11. I remember sat there in old college and we were watching TV as the planes flew in and realized maybe our Army careers were going to be slightly different than they had been two days ago. She then joined the Intelligence Corps and her career escalated from there. I found myself deployed out to Kosovo, then bounced from Kosovo into Iraq. But then a few years later, did my first deployment out to Afghanistan. Sally actually went to Afghanistan twice in total. She was posted at this huge multinational headquarters over there. And pretty quickly, she realized that there were problems with the way they were going about things. What we found is when we then deployed especially those individuals, say, who are working within the interrogation teams or working very closely with the Afghans in training roles, was the understanding we deployed with about the culture, about the people, in many ways was very off the mark. 
She gives an example. So we thought it'd be great, you know, to help the villagers and we'd give them water because, of course, everyone needs fresh water to survive. A few weeks later, grenades were going down the wells and the wells were being destroyed. At first, Sally thought it was the Taliban. It later transpired that it was, in fact, the women in the villages, the people they were trying to help. Because once we put water in all of water points in all of the villages, it meant the women weren't able to walk several miles to the next village, go and collect their water and come back. And the women liked that because it got them out of the houses, it got them out of the town, they got to meet the other women, they got to have, you know, their daily chit-chat. And by giving easy access to water, and by not understanding the culture, they were inadvertently destroying the very thing these women really valued which was time away from their husbands and time, you know, to go and engage, which is really important in those sort of communities with limited technology. So when it came to training the Afghan security forces, effectively modeling them in America's image with the same power structures, routines and idiosyncrasies, was that ever really going to work? And what's unfortunate that it creates the opportunity for contractors to make millions of pounds. This lack of understanding coupled with the fact that they had clearly decided to throw a whole bunch of money at the situation instead of actually helping, it just created the conditions for a bunch of guys who were ex-soldiers to make a lot of money. So why didn't anyone say anything? People were speaking up. People were speaking up saying this isn't going to work. Maybe we should have spoken truth to power a lot louder, but I'm not entirely sure we would have been listened to if we did say it. On some level... It does make you wonder, if everyone knew this was never going to work, were the power players in charge of all of this, allowing or even encouraging this war profiteering to continue? The country quickly fell back into the hands of the Taliban, which kind of proved that all of this training and money spent on building up the Afghan security forces so they could fight America's fight, it clearly didn't work. And this invisible army... It pretty much was invisible. It became harder and harder to really hold them accountable. So you all remember the $135 million of questionable costs by George Scientific, right? Well, because they went out of business in 2016, the government couldn't really get its money back. Here's ABC reporter Rhonda Schwartz again. Whether they adequately investigated and did aggressive auditing of all these contracts history will be the judge and I think it's a question that has been raised by many whether there has been sufficient oversight of the billions and billions of dollars that have been spent on this industry. And it's not just the defense contractors themselves that have benefited. At the beginning of the war back in 2001, let's say you invested $10,000 in private defense contractors. Well, those stocks would now be worth 100 grand. In fact, 51 members of Congress own stocks in private defense contractors, totaling over $5 million. We can all see the human devastation that war and occupation has led to. More than 2,400 U.S. military personnel and nearly 50,000 Afghan civilians, in addition to tens of thousands of casualties among U.S. contractors, the Afghan military, national police, and others. And whether the U.S. entered Afghanistan for the right reasons or the wrong ones, it's clear that some folks profited along the way. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. 
And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheap, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. And I was just thinking to myself, why on earth didn't he mention this? And it was at that moment uh, it occurred to me the reason he, he may be telling me this was because he'd actually played that particular game, whereas the other game, where, where he won in brilliant style, hadn't been played at all. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Tom Fuller. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod. <laughs>